Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for your goodness and love towards us, shown in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that having heard again these words about him, as we continue to hear and think and dwell on these verses, we pray that by your Spirit, you would in our hearts enable us to see more clearly the surpassing greatness of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. What is it that keeps a church faithful and strong? What is it that keeps Christians faithful and strong? What sets apart the church in 
uh, a culture that is pressurizing it? What sets apart the church that is thriving from one that simply fades away? The church in Philippi was in a, in a vulnerable place. In many ways, it was a, a strong and vibrant church. Paul is uh, thrilled with them. Uh, the tone of this letter is full of joy. But he's also aware of, of the pressures uh, that they're under and the dangers that come with those, the vulnerabilities that came. Uh, he's aware that they are missing him. Uh, he is in prison and they don't know whether they'll see him again. And that's causing them anxiety. In chapter 1, verse 28, he talks of uh, opponents, enemies that are causing the church to be frightened. As well as Paul's own absence, one of their own members, Epaphroditus, had been sent with a gift and a a message to Paul, uh, as we heard last week. Uh, And he, in the course of doing so, had become ill, had almost died. And again, that just shook them. Later on in chapter 4, we see that there are tensions in the church, members publicly uh, disagreeing, arguing with each other. So there are vulnerabilities there that could be exploited. And Paul is concerned because he knows that in in many of the other churches that he has uh, planted, Those vulnerabilities were exploited by false teachers. The problems in Philippi are nowhere near uh, as severe or as immediate perhaps as those in Corinth or in Galatia. But he knows that if he doesn't help the church get ready to to strengthen themselves, those things could come in uh, and take advantage of their worries and anxieties and destroy the church. And so in this final section of the letter, he's, he's really summing up his whole message, the way that they need to stay safe as a church, to thrive. It's not a new thing he says, something that he said before, he said it before in the letter, but he says it again, and it's this, rejoice in the Lord. Treasure Jesus Christ above all things, he says. Desire him above everything else. Put your confidence only in him. For Paul, that is, that is what will keep the Philippian church healthy and safe and secure. And so in order to encourage them to this, in order to encourage us to this, he Uh, gets on to giving his own life as an example to show them what it looks like to rejoice in the Lord and put their confidence in him. But first, first he has to warn them of the false teachers that are endangering them. So we'll look at that first in verse 2. The false teachers. Watch out for those dogs, he says, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. They're very strong words, but Paul is aware of the absolute necessity. This is is not a situation for him which he can live with, you know, an area of legitimate disagreement in the church. Now, this, this for him, he realizes, is something that will destroy their very foundations. Their existence as a church, their existence as Christians was under threat from these people who could come in. 
But it could seem a bit strange to us because if someone came into St. Andrew's and stood at the front and said, well, you should all be circumcised, I doubt there'd be a great rush to the front to take up the offer. There wouldn't be much enthusiasm for it. It seems very odd that people would think that this was an attractive message, that Paul would think that people would be swayed by this. So what was it that was being offered? What was it that was so attractive about the offer? Well, it, it was an offer of social respectability, which for a church that was under pressure both from Romans and from Jews was, was quite an attractive proposition. You see, Judaism was a tolerated religion. It, it, was, it was understood within the Roman Empire. People could, could see it, and even if they didn't like it, they, they could at least grasp what it was about, and it had some level of protection. But Christianity did not. And so, with a short, admittedly painful act, you could, you could become socially acceptable. You could become identifiable, known, have some protection from the law. It offered people a, a very clear identity marker. They could be associated with that group. Everyone knows who you are. You can become part of something much bigger than yourself, linked to all this history. It was, it was a relatively quick fix. But Paul knew what the results of that would be. It was, for example, only open to half the community, and therefore it was just a breeding ground for pride and superiority. Confidence in the flesh that made people look down on others if they weren't circumcised. It made you part of a special group, set you apart somewhat from everyone else. Very attractive, but ultimately destructive to a community, to people. It promised them short-term relief from suffering. Yes, you won't get the social pressure so much. Yes, the short term might be a bit better for you. But long term, he's saying you'd be denying Christ. You'd be denying everything that he stands for, everything that he has done for you. You would lose everything that he offers. See, what Paul saw was that, that the truth of what God had done in Christ, of offering freely to anyone and everyone his righteousness, perfect and full, Anyone who would trust him, well, that was being utterly destroyed by these people who were saying, well, yes, but you need to do this as well. So while no one in our day is advocating circumcision as a way to please God, the the attractive promises that came with it are still around. Their destructive results are still a danger for us. Take social acceptability, for example. In this country, for a long time, Christianity has been socially acceptable. In fact, uh, for many years, it was, it was the way to be socially acceptable. But times are changing. It's less and less the case. And so that attractive promise of social acceptability, if you just, just tweak the message somewhat... Just focus on other things. Just change slightly how you do things and become socially acceptable. 
Well, that's a more and more attractive offer. But then what happens when it changes again? Christianity wasn't socially acceptable in the Roman Empire. It has been in this country. It may not be again. What happens when it changes again? Social acceptability is a, an unstable thing. It doesn't offer us security in the long term. It doesn't offer us safety or freedom from anxiety in the long term. We'll always be captive to whoever's calling the shots at any particular time. We'll always be living in fear of being on the wrong side of history. There's the attraction of religious pride and superiority to be part of, of an inner group, an inner inner circle. Yes, everyone's, everyone's a Christian, but you could, be, you could be slightly better than everyone else. You could, you could be part of the, the elite, perhaps. Again, an attractive offer. We can do things which make us think, oh yes, I've, I've earned my place. I don't need to worry about what God thinks of me because look what I've done and look what I've said and look what I've helped with and look what I've given for this. I've done more than that. But that, that only lasts while we're ahead of others. As soon as someone surpasses us, we grow envious. Religious superiority just breeds competitiveness and divisiveness. It requires someone to be worse than me if I'm going to feel good. It increases our anxiety. What if, what if we've not done quite enough? What if everything that we have done that we would look to isn't quite enough? Do we need to do more? Should we help more? Should I give more? Should I pray more? Maybe I should pray more often. Maybe I should pray in different ways. Maybe I should read my Bible more. What if it's never enough? Again, fear, anxiety become the ruling passions of our life. And our joy in the Lord is taken away. The attraction of the quick fix, the the one-off act, if you just do whatever it is, fill in the gap. then your Christian life will be transformed. If you just, then you will feel so much better. If only one thing, this thing will change your life. But the quick fix often disappoints because when the joy fades away, when the the thrill of having done that thing fades away, of that experience, whatever it is, well then we're left with the need to find the next one or with the cynicism of just realizing that they all ultimately disappoint. It's not a way to lasting joy. So circumcision is is not in itself a danger to us, but the things it represented, the things it offered, those things are still there, aren't they? Do we see them in our own lives? Do you see them in St. Andrews? Is that kind of thing gaining ground among us or fading away? 
Paul says, the safety of the church, the safety of our lives as Christians is at stake. But having warned them against the false teachers, he then goes to show why. Treasuring Christ, rejoicing in the Lord, is a safeguard and protects the eternal joy of the Christian and of the church. And he does so by giving his own life as an example uh, in verses 4 to 11. See, actually, he he sets himself up and says, look, these false teachers, whatever they come and offer you, I've had all that. I was circumcised on the eighth day and I was of the tribe of Benjamin. And no Gentile is ever going to get that through circumcision. They can't get those things. I have been, he says, meticulous about the law. So that that anyone who comes and tells you, you should be following this. He says, I've done all that. No one can point at me and say, oh yes, but you didn't do this. Or you didn't do this. No, Paul says... I am blameless outwardly. Try and find someone, he says, who could accuse me of falling short in any of these ways. And having held himself up and shown his qualifications for putting confidence in himself and in his own achievements and abilities and heritage, he says, that's all rubbish compared to knowing Christ. He says, all the, all the confidence and the, the satisfaction that those things gave me compared to Christ is nothing. Only Christ can deal with my past and my present and my future in a way that gives assurance and joy and hope. You see, in the past, he says, I was given a righteousness from Christ, not by the law, but simply through faith in him, verse 9. And so Paul was freed from the tyranny of having to compare himself to others, of having to prove his superiority to others, of competing always with others. Because he'd received the free gift of righteousness through faith in Christ. And every Christian receives the same gift through faith in Christ that there's no longer any basis for looking down on others. And instead, we, we look to Christ in order to motivate us to grow. And the progress of others around us, far from being a source of, of envy or jealousy, becomes a source of rejoicing because we can see in them the work of Christ and Christ has become our surpassing joy. And so it's a delight to us to see others grow. Divisiveness is ended because the righteousness of Christ comes through faith. And because it's a gift, it also frees us from the tyranny of wondering if we've done enough. Because enough has been done for us. We're perfectly acceptable in Christ. It's a righteousness that comes from God and therefore is acceptable before God, not one that we make up on our own. 
And so we're freed from the the fear of of frantically wondering if we've done enough and throwing ourselves into whatever we can do in order to try and make ourselves feel that God would accept us because he accepts us in Christ. Paul can look at his past and see the perfect righteousness of Christ given to him and have assurance. But then in the present The surpassing greatness of Christ frees him from the tyranny of social respectability. He he can suffer for the sake of Christ. He can can suffer the, the contempt and the scorn and the persecution of the culture around him because he knows that that a short term tweak in order to gain their acceptability will actually bring no lasting joy or protection to him. And when that compares to the unchanging acceptance that Christ gives him, well, there's no competition. He sees Jesus Christ on the cross, the ultimate social outcast. And he says, I want to follow in his footsteps because that will bring lasting joy. See, Paul's suffering now is not just his. It's sharing in Christ's suffering. So even that becomes a means of drawing closer to Christ, who was his desire and his joy. We even in the present receive the power of Christ's resurrection. And we're freed from the tyranny of the quick fix. See, those, those times when we're, we're suffering, we're going through a, a, a dry period, we feel maybe spiritually dead. Uh, and we're just, we need something. We need a quick fix to, to take us out of that. Paul says, well, the resurrection power of Christ could come at any moment. You don't need to look for something new. You don't need to, to go outside of Christ to find that. Because those, those times, whether of, of suffering or dryness, whatever it is, those things aren't terminal because we have in God a God who raises the dead. At, at any point, we can have hope because God at any time could work his resurrection power in us. So in the past and in the present, Paul says, my joy is secure. And then in looking to the future, his joy was secure as well. He fixes his eyes, verse 11, on attaining the resurrection from the dead. Now whether that comes through his death and resurrection or whether it comes because Jesus Christ restores him, whether it comes from his staying in prison, whether it comes from his releasing from prison, he doesn't know, but he knows But whatever means it happens, he will attain the resurrection of the dead. And so he doesn't have to get his best life now. He doesn't have to seek all his joy now. Whatever suffering and disappointment and pain he's going through, he knows ultimately 
he will attain the resurrection of the dead. His future is secured and therefore he can rejoice in Christ. So let us treasure Christ. Whatever we think is, is gained to us, whatever from our past or from our present or in our future, everything that, that gives us identity or value or meaning apart from Christ, compare it to him. And you'll see that he is surpassingly great. Whatever others offer in terms of a, a quick fix or social acceptability, Paul says, no, look at Christ. And there is a joy and a hope and a satisfaction far more secure and enduring than anything that they can offer. Everything that we're, we're living for or surviving for compared to Christ. Look at him and you'll see that he is reason enough to live for. He surpasses everything. Whatever we lose for Christ won't leave any gaps in our life. It won't leave any emptiness because Christ surpasses it all. So let us individually and together as a church rejoice in the Lord because that is the security of our joy and of our endurance as a church. Amen.